Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. Today I've joined with me Andrew Hronich. I should have asked how to say his last name before we went rolling, um, but he's a graduate of Liberty University. Um, he's currently pursuing his master's at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's the author of the book, The Way Up, Came Down in 2020, and his new book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocastasis. Um, hopefully I pronounced that right. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about Andrew's book, uh, which is pretty freaking cool. It's about like a Christian version of universalism. And like, if you look at the endorsements, it's like, I remember like when we lived on the same dorm, but now Andrew's <laughs> here having books endorsed by people like David Bentley Hart, Greg Boyd, Dale Allison, Jerry Walls, like all these heavy hitters. So Andrew, what's up, man? How are you? Thank you for having me, Zach. Yeah, um, I'm excited for today. Um, I do want to say before we get rolling, uh, welcome everyone who's listening. If you're new to here in Apologetics, please, please subscribe, uh, leave a like, share on social media, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. I set the tier super low so that even if you can help out at like a dollar a month, um, literally like pennies a day, that would be so huge. So if you could do that, um, I'd, be, I'd be very grateful. But Andrew... Let's talk about you and this work. Tell me, like, what's up with you? What's new? And maybe tell people a little bit about yourself as we get rolling, because it's been a little bit since you've come back on the podcast. Um, the last time you were on was episode 216, about nine months ago. So what's up with you? No, yeah, well, I, first, I want to remind the guests that Zach and I knew each other before, you know, we hit it big, so to speak. I mean, we knew each other when we were chasing <laughs> after girls in freshman year in college. So um, it's it's a pleasure to be on Zach's podcast. Uh, this is where it all started in terms of podcasts. So I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me, Zach. And as far as my journey, it's it's been wonderful, I have to say. I mean, the responses from some people have been amazing. I get messages every day from folks who say that I've helped them in their faith in some way. And for me, that's extremely humbling. Um, and I'm honored to be a part of other people's walk with the Lord. Um, like you said, with the endorsements, it's absolutely incredible. Uh, as far as the endorsements, I'm super pumped. Um, I know some of these individuals personally, like Dale Allison. He's a professor at my seminary, Princeton Theological Seminary. So I was uh, very grateful for his endorsement, among others. And um, as far as the book of the whole, I was reading it last night and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I wrote this. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty good, <laughs> if I do say so myself. So um, if you go to my Instagram, you can find out a way uh, to get 40 percent off for individuals who subscribe to Stock's newsletter. So they get a one disc, uh, one coupon discount. And I would highly suggest that you would use it on my book or right? you can use it in another book. But I think this is worth it. Um, so that's a way that people can save money and that um and i want to show people if i can the book itself so let's see this is the book in all its glory and as you can see with the image i was inspired by the idea of god as the grand chess master right that no matter what moves we make god can anticipate those moves and um he will in the end checkmate us like c.s lewis said concerning his own conversion um so yeah that's just a little bit um a little bit about me i guess i could add is that for those who haven't seen uh, previous podcast with Zach. I'm actually a graduate of uh, Liberty University. So um, I get two questions usually a lot. One, why on earth are you at Princeton Theological Seminary? Two, how are you a universalist coming out of Liberty University? Um, so since this episode is on universalism, I'll answer the second question. <laughs> the other one's for a different time. Um, it all began for me really when I was at Liberty in my junior year, I think it was, and I was studying the soteriological problem of evil, or the question of the pseudo-evangelized and the unevangelized. Remember being in theology class, and the Calvinist view was basically presented. Don't you know, Romans 1 says that these people are God-haters and that they suppress the truth, right? Uh, inclusivism can't work. Um, so, and, and that was just made me really depressed. I, was, I actually stayed up really long nights, and I think um, some nights I was crying. I thought it was just awful how these people had no opportunity 
whatsoever to hear the gospel and to respond to it. Um, and then I think around that time I read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And people need to know, this is after I watched uh, the Calvinist gospel, as I call it, which is really the American gospel film. And uh, they had blind a bunch of people who are now my friends. So it's, it's quite interesting looking at that movie in retrospect. But um, in the movie, they had painted Rob Bell out to be kind of a villain. And so in reading the book the first time, I, I didn't so much appreciate it. And reading the second time, I didn't come away thinking that Rob Bell was a universalist. Um, I came away thinking that Rob Bell was like C.S. Lewis and that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. There's hope. But because of free will, we just don't know in the end. Um, so then I started reading other books. The book that really did it for me was called The Book of Romans, written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Uh, it was just in normal devotional reading one day where I was reading through the book of Romans and I come to Romans five and I go, holy crap, this guy thinks everybody's going to be safe, but he's clearly wrong, right? Doesn't he know that Augustine settled the issue? Um, and so I, I have marked in my Bible, which I may have showed last time, I have tons of notes in my Bible. I had one question. I said, does Paul mean that all men shall be justified? So then I started reading everything I could get my hands on, on the subject. I mean, you'll see that the bibliography for my book is about 20 pages in, in small text. Um, and I came to the conclusion in the end that all men will, in fact, eventually be saved. Um, and I think it's a, a beautiful ending to God's great story. And I hope that other people will come to appreciate and believe in that ending to God's story as well. Hmm. Okay, well, that's super cool, Andrew. Um, and what we're going to do today, if people are like trying to listen and they're trying to fumble these notes together at the last second, um, is kind of like look at Andrew's book. Um but also just talk about like just different things about like different quotes and whatnot. Um, just because if you look back at the podcast history, we did a comp where Andrew gave like a philosophical and biblical case for universalism on this podcast. He's been on a bunch of other ones since then um, talking about this. So people can check that out. So we're going to look at kind of like specific questions as we kind of roll into this. So one of the things you hinted at, Andrew, is talking about like the views of like like soteriology like um with regards to the problem of evil and you talked about like how like you were kind of given like the calvinist response to the um maybe like the people that have never heard the gospel and you're like hmm, interesting um but like when we're talking about like the universalist right how can these different views of like divine providence like work for universalism mm -hmm. like do you have to be like maybe like an arminian to be a universalist or like are there other views on the table for the universalist Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's um, one of the questions I set out to address in the first chapter itself. And it was actually a lot of fun doing um, because at the time before I was a universalist, I was a Calvinist. And so it was really Calvinism because of how I saw it through the lens of John Piper and R.C. Sproul and other folks. That I thought, well, this is just not a compatible view with universalism. But as it turns out, there are actually plenty of universalists who are Calvinist. I know them. So it all depends on how you define the term Calvinist, doesn't it? Um, so but backing up, from Calvinism, I want to start first with a view known as Molinism. All right, you know, Molinism is uh, really just the opiate of the apologists these days. Um, and so I think it's Dr. William Lane Craig who really popularized a view, an anti universalist view on Molinism. But before addressing Dr. Craig's view, I want to show how perhaps some Molinists can come to adopt universalism. Now, Molinists, of course, believe that there are three logical uh, steps in God's knowledge, right? There's God's knowledge of what are necessary truths, there's God's knowledge of creaturely counterfactuals, and there's God's free knowledge, the knowledge of the world that he has created. Um, so there are, of course, an infinite um, uh, number of possible worlds within God's natural knowledge, but there are also an infinite number of feasible worlds that God could actualize, right? 
um, that are contained in God's middle knowledge. So think about that for a second. God knows of an infinite number of feasible worlds. And um, all I'd ask is, is a single one of them a universalist world? Now, I'd say the odds of that are very high, of those infinite number of worlds, that there's at least one that is a feasible universalist world. But then the next question comes is where Dr. Craig makes a rebuttal, where Dr. Craig says, well, maybe there are universalist worlds, but only like eight people are saved. But God wants lots and lots of people to be saved, right? And so in order for lots and lots of people to be saved, it may have to be that lots and lots of people have to be damned. Um, well, this is automatically presupposing that there is no feasible universalist world that's sufficiently populated. I find that incredible. I find it incredible to think of the infinite number of feasible worlds God can actualize. There's not a single one that's a uh, feasible, universalist, sufficiently populated world. So that's something I'd say just outright to a moment to think about. Is it really plausible that no such world as I've described exists? Now, the way that certain people try to get around this is like Dr. Craig is they'll say they'll borrow from Alvin Plantinga's notion of transworld depravity. And they'll say, well, perhaps it is that there are certain essences that are transworld damned, meaning that there is no uh, that they are contingently damned and they will refuse God's grace in every feasible circumstance. Well, first of all, that's unscriptural, because as uh, Jesus points out in Matthew 11, he talks about certain cities that would have repented had they received certain knowledge. So Jesus knows of feasible circumstances in which these individuals would have repented. In other words, they're not transworld damned. Um, I think where the question really lies, or where the conflict really lies, as Alvin Planica would want us to say, um, is in the question of post-mortem repentance, which we'll come to, I guess, uh, at another time. But I think that's where the conflict really lies for people like Dr. Craig, is that's what they're assuming at the outset. So people need to be aware of that when they read responses like Dr. Craig. And so... Um, I think Zachary Manis was the one who once said that universalism may well be a marriage made in heaven, whereas anti-universalism is more like a match made in hell. So, <laughs> and I agree with him. I, I think that Molinism has the resources to make possible universalism. But the question I usually get is not from Molinists, it's from open theists, right? Where the future is open, right? The future is not infallibly known by God. And so that was one of the big problems, the thorny issues as I was addressing divine providence. I thought, oh man, what about an open theist? Can an open theist come to embrace universalism? And as people will see, I actually have an endorsement from Greg Boyd, and I had a wonderful conversation with him. He's one of my favorite theologians, although Alyssa Childers and the American Gospel don't think too great of him. Right? Uh, and and um, we had a great conversation about this. And in fact, Boyd has been doing several podcasts recently where he seems to have come out as universalist. Um, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, but it just goes to show that not all open theists have to be pessimistic about the future. In fact, some can, in fact, be universalists. I think of John Hick, for example. For those who know John Hick, John Hick was an open theist, but he was also a necessary universalist. So some might ask, well, how does this work exactly? Right? How is the future open, and yet God knows that all persons will be saved? Right? We can say that all persons will be saved. We can be universalists and teach it. Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to say that God has created natural limits, right? We already know that he's created natural capacities for us and natural limits for us. I mean, as much as I love Neverland, right? I, I dreamed of it as a child. I can't fly there right now. I don't, I don't have the natural capacity to fly. I can't flap my wings like a bird and fly. So that's one of the um, limits that God has placed naturally upon me. And so there may be other ones as well. So I think that what a perfectly loving God might do is placed 
natural limits such that creatures cannot endure irreparable harms or harms that omnipotence cannot repair, such as would happen in a case where someone hardens their heart to the point of no repentance whatsoever. And I think an example of this we can find in scripture is something that Greg Boyd uses in Satan, the Problem of Evil, where he gives the idea, uh, the example of Simon Peter, who rejects Jesus three times. And Boyd says that in order for Jesus to know that Simon Peter would deny Jesus three, exactly three times, not just deny him once and run away, deny him twice and get arrested, right? They knew it was three times that God placed Simon Peter into certain circumstances, highly pressurized circumstances, in which he squeezed his character to the point of bringing out this result. So I thought about that for a second. I said, you know, if God can do that, right? If, if God can do that to Simon Peter in order to bring about this result, then why can't God do that to the damned in order to bring about a superlative good, that being of salvation itself, right? So if it's not at odds with God's goodness to put Simon Peter in these circumstances, these highly pressurized circumstances, in order to press his character to achieve this result, then why can't God do the same with the damned, right, was a question that I had. Um, an objection that some people uh, might have to the idea of natural limits um, that I'm saying is that, well, maybe it would be even better, though, if those natural limits didn't exist so that like, there could be a almost um, non-limit between goods and evils obtainable in that world. In other words, it's better to make people more free. So the more free people are, the better. But I think this strikes both ways because I can imagine a more free world than the one that God has um it, at least as I can see, actualized. So, for example, I would ask an open day to say, well, what do you think about the case where God could have actualized a world in which we start off as disembodied souls, right? And we have the chance, we have the choice of entering to this world such that we are able to endure pains and harms or such that we don't. So, for example, perhaps uh, God gives me the option of when I am embodied as an embodied soul, now I can, uh, that body that I take on can perhaps have different qualities in a body that um, if I said that I wanted to go through um, soul making. So for example, if a bullet speeds my way, my body could turn to a gaseous form, something like that. Well, in that case, there's no involuntary suffering in that world that I have just postulated, right? All suffering is voluntary. So you still have the good of soul making, right? As le at least if some individuals elect to choose bodies that can be harmed, but you also have the good of um, it's the freedom of nobody suffering involuntarily, right? So this seems to me that preachers are more free in that world than this world, which open theists think that God has actualized. So what do we do with this? Well, I would say that if there is no best option, right, then God can only, he can just choose a good option, right? A good among all the range of good options. And as long as God chooses a good option, he cannot be faulted. And I think the option that I have laid out, one in which there are natural limits that keep creatures from irreparable harm and yet they're free, is in fact a good option. And since there are no best option for God to choose, I think that God can choose this option I've described. So that's a way of looking at Molinism. That's a way of looking at open theism. But I'll just pause to see if you have any questions or comments. So if I'm just tracking with you right, Andrew, um, what one of the main things you're trying to drive home here is that like one of the things that like all Christians agree about, hopefully, is that like God is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants and like he can achieve whatever purposes um, he wants. And what you're thinking is, is like, hey, we have this thing where you think there's like a really good case to make for universalism. Um, so let's say that's true. Universalism is true. And if that's true, there's a question of like, well, how is everyone going to come to be saved? And you're thinking like within 
God's omnipotence, like whether it's like open theism or Molinism um, or Calvinism, God can come up with ways where all people would come to be saved. Even if you have things like libertarian freedom and whatnot, um, looking at like the case of like Simon Peter, where he's put in a situation where God kind of knows how he will respond even of his own accord. Um, and that's what you're trying to get at is like with divine providence, we can get like a universalist picture, like no, regardless of like your view on like the Molinism, Calvinism, open theism, like that whole debate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Richard Bauckham once wrote an article on Universal, and he says basically what all Universalists have in common is simply the belief that eventually all will be saved. And so that was that's what my book is promoting is mere Universalism. I'm not trying to turn Calvinists into Arminians. I'm not trying to turn Arminians into Calvinists, right? I think you can be a Calvinist and be a Universalist. So that's what my book is doing is saying you don't have to abandon Calvinism per se. Like if you are really convinced of, of compatibilist freedom. You can embrace compatibilism and still be a universalist. Likewise, I turn to the person who believes that God doesn't infallibly for another future. I say, you can be an open theist and be a universalist. So uh, basically, I'm granting epistemic permission to individuals who want to embrace universalism but say, well, but I think God doesn't force people into heaven. If I had a dime for every time I heard that as an objection to universalism, then I could have all my college loans paid off, right? And so what we're doing exactly, we're saying, who said anything about force? Right. We're talking about the resources that are available to God. I have such confidence in the abilities of God as the grand chess master. I don't think God has to force anybody. I think that's a lack of faith in actually the infinite resourcefulness of God. He's no Sherlock Holmes. Right. He, he's better than the ghost of Christmas past, present and future. Um, and I think that he, as someone who knit us together in our mother's womb, can get the job done. Right. He knows what to say and when to say it, how to say it, how not to say it. Right. And um, so, yeah, so I'd say to individuals who are looking towards universalism that definitely, definitely read the first chapter, because if you have a certain view of providence, I think I give multiple ways for how your particular view might come to embrace universalism. Okay, yeah, that's super helpful, Andrew, kind of laying out like, hey, like Calvinist, Molinist, open theist, like we can all come together here and like consider this. Like you can't be like, oh, I'm a Molinist, so, so universalism is impossible. Um, Okay, that's helpful. Um, one thing that I think that'd be interesting to talk about um, is obviously like there's three main views in like this whole soteriological debate. Um, like there's universalism, um, there's the idea of like eternal conscious torment, and then there's like conditional immortality or like annihilationism. Um, so one thing I think of like I've leaned towards like an annihilationist like perspective because I think there are some problems with like an eternal view of hell where like eternal conscious torment where I'm like, I don't really know if I can like make sense of that. Um, the only plausible way in my mind is like a Lewis version of like eternal conscious torment. But besides for that, um, so, but then I also see these passages about hell and I'm like, Ooh, like this is rough. Like I know Andrew's got some like nice answers right here, but for me it's hard. Um, so like, this is where I lean towards personally, though I'm not like going to like die on this hill. Cause I, I haven't studied it in depth in a while. Um, but like in your view, like why not annihilationism, Andrew? Like, well, what good does it have, and then like why do you think it falls short? Yeah, I think that um, you understate it when you say that the eternal view has just a few problems. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think a little bit more. I know uh, Emerson Green is out here listening to this podcast. He's like, "Holy crap, that Zach Seckler idiot!" Only some problems. The eternal conscious torment. <laughs> Hi, Emerson, if you're listening. No, yes, it's, it's got quite a quite a bit more than a few problems now. Uh, sometimes I get the question, Andrew, why didn't you like become annihilationist before you became universal, right? Sometimes it's a stepping stone because I think for many people, they were brought up with a traditionalist view. So you're brought up with the view that someone's got to get the stick at the end of the day, right? So I saw, the, um, for example, there's a tweet from Frank Turek, right? <laughs> just wonderful on this topic. 
And uh, Frank Turek talks about how on universalism, the devil is not defeated. And it was Randall Rouser who replied mm-hmm. back with exactly what I was thinking. We're actually, uh, Abraham Lincoln once said that in making my enemy my friend, have I not defeated or destroyed him, right? You mm-hmm. have in the sense he's no longer an enemy. And so if that's what happens with the devil, then Satan is defeated and Lucifer is redeemed, as Origen would put it, right? And that's wonderful. <laughs> uh, so I think a lot of this really comes down to issue intuitions that each of us have, right? Some of us have intuition that somebody's got to get it at the end of the day. I just don't have that intuition, right? So maybe that's where the conflict lies in that sense. But again, why not conditional mortality? Well, it's not like I didn't know about it when I was going through this. I mean, I love Greg Boyd. And so I read his article pretty soon after I started looking at this topic. But can I just be honest? I never found it an attractive view. I think it's because I've had an aversion to capital punishment for a while. Um, and I think that this has solidified me even more, my position against conditionalism, against capital punishment. Now, uh, on the other hand, some people would say, well, you know, annihilationism is less like capital punishment and more like metaphysical suicide. But again, in the book, I, I don't think those arguments work. So I'd say that with many annihilationists that I meet, the reason why they hold to their view is because they're convicted of scripture, right? So let's start with that first. Well, if you are a critical um, or I should say liberal or moderate theologian, you're probably not going to find that all too convincing, right? Because uh, for some people, they're going to say, well, not all scripture is on the same level, okay? Like te- texts of genocide aren't at the same level as text of um, to lo- uh, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, right? As Randall Rouser might probably agree with. And so uh, a critical modern theologian might look at the moral conscience within and say, no, when I'm examining the moral conscience, I think that annihilation is disgusting. So I'm thinking of someone like Hergen Moltmann, for example, and the annihilation of hell would say, no, this is this is just ugly. Uh, Richard Beck, for example, he also said when he was studying this issue that the doctrine of annihilationism just seemed like another doctrine of hell when, in fact, Richard Beck was looking for God. Right. I think that's an interesting way of putting it. So I think that the critical uh, or the uh, liberal theologian might reject this understanding, this naive, what they would see, understanding of we need to go for proof text of the Bible. They'd say, no, I don't think that you can support this notion of annihilationism on pure reason. I don't think you can support it from conscience. And I really don't care what all these verses from the Old Testament mean. So that's one way of approaching it, right? But since I know my book is going to interact with many conservative evangelicals, that's not the approach, of course, I take in my book. So we have to ask ourselves, are there passages that sufficiently teach the annihilationist position? And and in contrast, are there uh, passages that cannot be matched with the annihilationist position that seem to teach the universal position? So let's start with the second. Well, we have those all passages, right? We have it in Colossians 1, 16 through 20. We have it in Romans 5, you know, 18 through 20. We have it in Ephesians 1, 8 through 10. Right? We have these statements of all being saved. Now, it, it, they don't come across as statements of all who are left are saved. They come across as statements that all who have been affected in the fall of Adam are those same all who are redeemed, right? Like we see in Romans 5. So it would be a really weird thing if I said there was an election, let's say, and uh, President uh, Xi was running in China. And uh, we saw the headlines says that um, all persons in China, you know, voted for President Xi. And we go, wow, it's landslide, every single person. And then we find out that actually that those who voted against President Xi were killed right and how could we look at that headline and say you know what all persons really did vote for president Xi. so it it just doesn't make sense at that more it's i think it's deceiving and so when people like john stott um try to co-opt universalist passages i don't think it works right i think it's clear that what those universalist pastors are saying that it's the same all the range of all persons who fell in adam it's that same all that are redeemed it's not some it's all 
so people could look at them in my book. So I don't think it makes sense to the universalist passages. So then you could say, well, you know, I just prioritize these annihilationist texts anyway. But how strong really are these annihilationist texts? Well, um, I'm not a harmonizer in chief. I like to look at this in context. So I don't say, well, you know, Jesus said this here, but look what Paul said here. Now, I mean that because people, particularly with 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it, it gets really interesting really quickly, is that how I take 2 Thessalonians 1.9 after talking to David Bentley Hart and saying, you know, David, what do you think about this is there are two ways it could be taken. One is we have to remember who Paul is writing to, right? He's, he's not writing to the American church. He's writing to the church in Thessalonica. That is if you think Paul wrote this letter. And he's trying to give hope to these individuals in particular, right? They're going through times of persecution. He says, don't you worry. You know, Christ will, he will come and he will return in kind to these people who have wronged you. So it's going to be proportionate, right? Well, this is the interesting thing about proportion. Those people who were persecuting the Thessalonican community, I mean, they weren't annihilating them. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Like, um, if this is about proportion, you know, we, we find like with like, then this seems rather disproportionate. I mean, we know that these people can't annihilate them because these people will later be resurrected. But Jesus is going to come back and annihilate these people. Where is the proportion in that? Um, another thing that I'd say is uh, that I think this is simply saying this passage that when Jesus returns, he's going to kill them. That's it. It's, it's, it's not saying that he's going to wipe them out of existence. When he comes back, they're going to die. That's about it. Um, that's the view that I take, David Bentley Hart takes, and a lot of other folks take. Um, so people can look at reasons for why I don't think 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is a good passage uh, to raise against Paul. I think the reason why a lot of people camp out there, it seems to be the only text in Paul or, or the one that could be considered the most clear that points to annihilationism within Paul. And so a lot of times I'll just see people race to 2 Thessalonians 1.9 when I ask them, you know, where does Paul teach about like this doctrine of hell that you have, this eternal doctrine of hell, and they'll go to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I just don't think it works. So then the next question I usually get is, well, what about Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, he talks about, you know, Gehenna, for example. Uh, he talks about Matthew 10, 28, that uh, destroy both soul and body. Or what about Revelation and the second death? Well, we don't have a limited time. So let me go to Revelation first, because that's one that usually comes up, right? What do we do with the second death? Well, I think that we need to understand second death within the context of Revelation, right? Some people want to go outside of Revelation and say, well, look how it's used here. But the problem with that is look at terms like the Spirit of God um, or the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit, as far as the biblical corpus takes, it seems to be um, a person, right? As as we think, sort of like what we think of a person. It seems to be uh, someone who has a will, someone who can be hurt, someone who can be grieved. Like, I can't grieve gravity, right? So, but that's like John, uh, John Shelby Spong and other points out, seems to be different than many how many Hebrew scholars take the Spirit of God, right? If you look at their works outside the Bible, when they're coming into the text, they see Spirit of God as uh, a personification, right? Or a metaphor for the power of God or the influence of God. So we have to be very careful what resources we are using when we're examining the text and which we're favoring. But I think in the context of Revelation, as Greg Boyd pointed out recently, um, if you look to the final chapters, what's very interesting is we see in uh, the later chapters about how the kings and the nations of the earth are entering into the church, right? So as you know, there's many different ways to take Revelation, right? Is this talking about our distant future? Is this talking about what's fulfilled in our past? Um, I would start out with this. First, the city. I'm sorry, Zach, if you thought in your youth like I did that, oh, the New Jerusalem is going to be this enormous city that God's going to drop on the earth from outer space, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it, the ex it's shaped to be like the Holy of Holies. It's said to be the bride of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, right? As far as I know, Christ is the polygamist. He's only got one bride, it's the church, right? And so 
the city is presented as the church. All right, so this is the church. So let's let's take the futurist view that um, these events are talking about the future in Revelation. So you have the judgment in Revelation 20. You have the church that's revealed, right? So, so the church is what's left. And then it says, and the nations of earth and the kings so stream into it. I remember I asked as a little kid in school, I said, wait a minute. If, that, if that's the church, right, then who are the only people at this point outside of the church? Right? They're the people in the lake. And um, I remember asking the Sunday school, I was like, wait, they get another chance? And so I, I tell people, go look this up in Revelation. Robin, Robin Perry does an excellent study of this. Every time, without exception, when the kings of the earth are mentioned, they're the villains, right? They're the bad guys. They side with the beast. They side with Satan, as do the nations. And yet they're the ones entering into the city. And they're the only ones at this point who are outside of the city. So it's really not rocket science. You're putting two and two together. And um, I think it's a beautiful way to end the story of Revelation. So that's on the futurist view. On the futurist interpretation, I could say that there is a way that you can read Revelation and you can arrive not at annihilationism, but actually at universalism. So um, those are some of the texts and those are some of the thoughts. Um, I guess I'd say as a concluding thought with annihilationism, that actually many annihilationist arguments seem to be uh, negative in kind and not positive. What I mean is that they seem to rely on how bad the eternal view is, um, where as it, they don't seem to stand up in contrast to universalism, right? They seem to, it's, it almost comes across like, well, this view isn't as bad as this other view, but sure. So it's, so the idea, well, it's less unjust than the eternal view, but that doesn't make it just, right? Just because it's less unjust doesn't automatically mean it's just. And so I think that the annihilationist view is very unjust. I don't think it's loving at all. I mean, you had Ryan Mullins on, for example. Ryan Mullins made a very good point that um, if love comprises of God, you know, valuing the existence of, some, of somebody wanting to be in relation to that person, you know, it's really weird that, oh, I, I value you so much and I want to be in relation with you, so I'm going to annihilate you real quick, mm -hmm. right? That That's bizarre to me. And one last thing I'd say is, the doctrines of providence play into this, all right, play into your view of annihilationism. So, um, for example, there are many Calvinists who are annihilationism, and I just think that's gross, okay? I, I think it's gross. And they think if you want to hold that view that God elects uh, only a particular people to final salvation, you need to come out and say that God does not love all persons in any meaningful sense of the term. You just have to. And I think if people did that, that overnight that view of Calvinism would just die. So for I think the pushback I would offer is John, John Piper's Desiring God, where John Piper says that the chief end of man is to glorify God by, in, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God by just enjoying him forever. I think that's how you put it, um, in contrast to the Westminster. And then he goes on to say that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So if that's true, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and God's in the glory-seeking business— then why won't God make sure that all persons will be satisfied in him? Because when they are satisfied in him, then he is glorified in them. So doctrines of uh, providence play into this. And I, that's something I pick up in the book. Last thing I said, that was the last thing, but I actually have one more uh, bone to pick that I'll lay out here for some people is um, I think that depending on how you define death, annihilation is going to fall prey to either the objection of double jeopardy or the objection um, of a, the atonement that Sean Bowalski and Robert Peterson and others lay out. So if if Christ is our substitute, right, then um, as PSA or penal substitutionary atonement theorists point out, then Christ takes on what would have been our punishment in our place, right, the place of the believers. So what is that punishment? Well, if that punishment is annihilationism, 
then it seems to be that, that Christ has to be annihilated himself. Well, this is pretty rough. I mean, does this reduce the Trinity to a Benedict, right? There's only two persons in the Trinity. Um, you know, or does this um, reduce the hypostatic union to say that there's a time when it came apart? Well, that's what seemed to go against, you know, certain creeds that we have in the early church. And um, so I think that this question of what is the nature of the punishment plays into the question of the atonement. And I yet Christine has a wonderful article that um, he put out. But in my book, I, I don't think that answers all the questions that some people have in this note. So I would still push back in the annihilationist. And I'd say that if you read the book of Hebrews, it says that in order to sympathize with us, he died a death like ours. Right. And if the death we deserve is annihilation, then Christ had to be annihilated. That's just it. The end of the story. And if he wasn't annihilated, right, that should show you that annihilationism isn't the punishment that we deserve. Um, and we could go into the double jeopardy argument, but that's a lot I just laid out there. And so I'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah, let's just there's a couple points I want to just emphasize, Andrew, while you get a drink of water. Um, one thing that you said that really stuck with me um, is that. And this is something I've been progressing towards even more is just thinking philosophically, like universalism is a very beautiful view, like compared to like maybe like conditional mortality. And what fleshes that out for me is I think about the people in my personal life that I care about dearly. Um, and like, if I think about the different views, I'm like, what's the most beautiful or like what makes the most sense or not, maybe not what makes the most sense, but what, what's the most beautiful it's universalism. And it's nothing about like, Oh, I want to see, I'm just making someone up right here, Phil in heaven. Um, I don't know any Phil's and if I do, so hopefully, <laughs> so, and if I do know someone named Phil and you're like, you're talking about me? No, I'm just made up a name here. Um, but take Phil, right? So like, there's something very beautiful about someone like that I know. And I was getting emotional thinking about this, that it's maybe like either like wandered away from the faith, like never has known Jesus. And just like the idea that like, they're going to suffer. Like, like that's not the beautiful part. Um, like they're going to suffer. They're going to be held accountable, all this stuff. But then they're going to come to know Jesus, like in the fullness, in their brokenness of where they're at right now, um, or maybe where they're going, like that person's going to eventually come to know Jesus and like appreciate him. It's not like he's getting getting like a, hey, get out a free card. Here you go. Universalism is true. Like that's not what this is that you're arguing for. And like there is something so beautiful about that when I think about that. Um, and I'd encourage listeners just like think about the people in your own life that are, if you're a Christian, that maybe have like wandered away from the faith or like maybe never knew Jesus that you like you're praying for. And just knowing that at some sense, at some time, those people would come to know Jesus. Like, I hope that's true. That's so beautiful. Um, yeah. And then it really, to me, like this is where I get hung up is like the exegesis of these passages. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't studied it in depth. I don't really know. There's a perfect God and I'm kind of content with that in some sense um but i do think that like we can't just be like pulling like oh first thessalonians 2 2 or whatever verse you said or like some verse in revelation and be like here here's my proof like we got to look at the text and look at the narrative holistically um so as you were talking those are just a couple of points that i reflected on andrew no uh, no yeah i think you're absolutely right i think the, for those who are interested in the axiology of theism that right um i think it's uh that it makes more sense if you adopt a universalist view than you do as an annihilationist view. It was Sergius Bulgakov who was reading who says that basically how the annihilationist view almost comes across as like um, like a school child who gets upset with his textbooks and he starts ripping them to shreds, right? Or different example is that um, it basically God ran out of grant money, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, God, God tried as best as he could, but couldn't do it. Uh, and one other thing I point out is the notion of coercion, right? So the notion of coercion is often leveled against universal, right? Like God doesn't force people into heaven. But I think that if something like annihilationism is true, let, there are different views of annihilationism, okay? So let's take the retributive view of annihilationism. I think clearly if that view is true, that I don't think anybody can make a free will choice 
to be in relation with God. I think that is coercion the highest order. I mean, think of it as a man who um, he, he proposes to a woman with a gun to her head and says, hey, if, if you don't accept you know, my marriage proposal, I'm going to shoot you. All right. Um, I'd say that can she make a free response at this point? You know, even if it was that he had never made that threat in the first place and she would have responded positively. That's not the case now. Now he has made this threat and in the face of the threat. Right. I think you have a case of coercion. Um, so ironically enough, it's actually this view that presents a threat to people making a free response to God. I find that deeply at odds with a God who wants us to be in a loving relationship with him one that I would think would be void of coercion. So I think that coercion is a problem that arises here in annihilationism. I think that God giving up on people is an enormous problem that I have uh, with this view. So yeah, I just encourage people to check out the book because here's the, here's the interesting thing that I note, Zach, is I went through different universalist books and want to see how many of them right actually address conditional mortality or spend some time on it. And I think Thomas Talbot had a couple pages in The Inescapable Love of God. David Bentley Hart had a couple paragraphs um, Eric Raytan and John Cronin, they had a couple pages and they actually had um, two articles out. Uh, one was in response to James Spiegel and one was just a general article about why universalism should be favored in respect to the love of God uh, than annihilationism. But all in all, there really isn't much literature out there that has been offered for universalists in order to respond to conditional immortality. Mine is the most extensive treatment, actually, of it. And um, with little time that I have left, I'd actually like to present one more argument that's not for universalism. But it's for to show that annihilationism isn't as good as some people think it out to be. There's a guy named Sean Bowalski out there who's presenting a view known as reconciliationism. And it's the view that eventually all persons will cease from sinning, right? So there'll be some who will be reconciled in all ways and some who will be reconciled in some ways. In the case of the damned, they will cease from sinning. They will see their lives as good to them on the whole, right? Better that they had existed than they had not existed. And uh, in some respects, it will be true. Um, so... In this case, you don't have people who are wanting to be annihilated, right? In this case, you don't have people who are annihilated. You don't have people continuing to sin. And so this is a traditional view, right? This is an, an eternal view of hell. And so I just ask people in Annihilationist, you know, which, you know, is which more demonstrates the love of God, the mercy of God? Um, this reconciliation is view proposed by Andy Saville, Henry Blocker, and Sean Bowalski, in which people cease from sinning in which people reconcile to God, at least in some ways, they see their life as good to them on the whole, or this annihilationist view where God just wipes them out of existence, right? Which one better shows the love and mercy of God amongst other things? And I think it's clear. Uh, and so I think it's false that annihilationist species, that all of them are superior to all traditional species of hell. I think that there are certain traditional species of hell, and you might agree, that are superior to certain annihilationist views of hell. So that's one defense I would make for the traditional view of hell. Okay, yeah, that's helpful, Andrew. All right, so what I want to do now is, is I want to read a quote. Um, Zondervan sent me this book. Um, this was before he passed, but it's like to me, Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation by Colin Hansen. Amazing book. Um, hopefully, I'll get Colin Hansen on very shortly on the podcast. That's one of my like top uh, people that I need to send a message out to. Um, and it's an amazing book. Like I'd encourage people to buy it, read it. Um, after you buy Andrew's book, buy this book. I've been flying through this book. Um, I'll finish it hopefully by the end of this week. And it's just like, Oh, it's so good. Um, but why I mention this is that uh, on my Instagram, this was a lot, a few days ago, I shared a quote, um, that Tim Keller <laughs> really liked. Then Andrew was like, Hey, like, I, I like this quote. Like, I want to talk about it. Um, so what I'm gonna do is I'm going to read this quote. Um, it's from page 54 of the book. Um, and he's quoting J um, 
about Tim Keller is talking about the hope of the resurrection in this context, um, using J.R. Tolkien in the Lord of the Rings. Um, so if you have the book, which you get that book, page 54, here's this quote from Tim Keller. In the last in the last book of the Lord of the Rings, Sam Ganji wakes up thinking everything is lost. And upon discovering instead that all his friends were around him, he cries out, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad to come untrue? Now, and the quote of the Lord of the Rings, Keller says, the answer is yes. And the answer of the Bible is yes. If the resurrection is true, then the answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And that's the end of this little quote from Keller. Um, Andrew, what stuck out to you when you saw this? And like, why bring it up in this context when we're talking about universalism and whatnot here? Sure. Yeah. It was so funny, Zach, when I saw you post it, because I was like, that's in my book. Tim Keller stole my <laughs> idea. Well, I think, to be frank, I think Tim Keller is trying to purchase something with the funds that he doesn't have to afford it. Right. So it's not true that the reconciliation, uh, that the resurrection makes it such that all um, all things come untrue. All how did he put it? All what come untrue? All sad things come untrue? Was that um, he, he said, it? is everything sad going to come untrue? Yeah. The answer is yes. That's not just that's not actually true on the resurrection because on the resurrection alone, it, it's not enough. You'd have to have universalism. So, for example, if these people are resurrected or some of them at least in order to be annihilated, then that's not coming untrue. The fact that my mother, for example, was annihilated out of existence is a is a tragic thing. That's not made untrue. Uh, if my mother is instead tormented forever, that's also not made untrue. The only thing that makes it untrue, as Rendell Rouser has pointed out in a blog post, is universalism. In universalism, it comes untrue that my mom is tormented forever. In universalism, it comes untrue that my mother would be annihilated. And so it was actually, I wanted to end my book on a bang. And so the last section I named it was Happily Ever After. I actually got to end my book with the words, the end. It was it was very incredible. <laughs> so what I did was, I, um, I'm i a huge uh, Tolkien fan, love the Lord of the Rings. So I knew of one of his essays, which was on fairy uh, fairy stories. And he talks about the concept of eucatastrophe, right? And it's a very interesting concept for those who will look at his book. And for Tolkien, uh, what he says is that the peculiar quality of joy in successful fantasy can be explained as a sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. In the eucatastrophe, we see in a brief vision that the answer may be greater. It may be a far-off gleam or echo of gospel in the real world. So what Tolkien is basically saying is that when we look at fairy stories, right, that certain fairy stories point to the real truth, right, point to the real story being God's story. So that got me thinking. I said, well, let me think about the fairy stories I remember as a kid. And they had a certain theme to them, the ending. They had this ending that says, and they all lived happily ever after, right? They all lived happily ever after. And I got thinking about that. I said, what if, you know, that those stories I heard as a child and that ending, they all lived happily ever after. What if that is God's way, like Tolkien is saying, of tuning me in to the real story in which they will all live happily ever after? It's reminded me of one other book called The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis in his Narnia series, where he talks about um, there's one scene in which there's this wicked witch who is trying to get the children and Puddleglum, the Marshwiggle, something like that, to think that... Um, that Narnia doesn't exist. Aslan doesn't exist. The world is really a bleak place. Now, what does Puddleglum do? Well, Puddleglum actually basically sticks it to the witch and says, you know, you know, this world, if you say that we've only imagined this world, this, this Narnia, well, I think that this Narnia world really licks 
this world that you're describing to me, right? This world that is so bleak in this. So I'm going to stick by the Narnia world, right? Well, Puddleglum is not saying as some think, you know, just to stick your head in the sand, right? In fact, as I picked up on other people, Lewis is presenting an ontological argument here. What Lewis is basically saying is that truth and beauty are intertwined, right? They're bound together. Mm -hmm. And so that what is beautiful points us to what is true. And so what Puddleglum is saying is, you know, this world that you're saying I'm imagining is seems obviously more beautiful than the world that you are postulating. And if that if beauty is an indication of truth, that should be an indication that this world that you're claiming to be the real world is not, in fact, the real world. So I thought about that. I said, well, that's that's the case with universalism, right? Where I say, well, you're presenting me this world in which not all persons are saved, in which for some persons it will be worse on the whole for them that they existed, in which it will kind of be like we see the situation on the border where certain children are ripped away from their parents, right? Although it will be a worse fate than that. Um, you know, God's not a celestial politician, hopefully. But it's going to be a world in which it's going to be worse for certain individuals on the whole, which not all sad things will come untrue. Whereas the world that I'm imagining is a world in which all persons will come to know Jesus, right? All persons, it will be great for them on the whole that they existed. We, it, we will see testaments to God's grace in them. I mean, I'm going to be kicking it with Dave Batista and the Guardians of the Galaxy. I'm going to see Elvis Presley. I'm going to shake hands with George Washington and Alexander the Great. Right, That world seems far more beautiful than the other world that people are proposing to me. And, if and even is, and even sorry to cut you off, but like I I think about that's cool. Like you meet people, but also seeing these people like repent and come to know Jesus. Like people, you could think of like people in your own life, or maybe like some of these um, people in history that like maybe like really messed up, but like them coming to this point where like they come to realize like their own sin and what they did, um, and realizing like how broken they are, and like these people coming to repenting and like turning to Jesus. And then maybe like the people they sinned against coming to forgive them. Like that's just freaking beautiful when I think about it. I'm just like, I don't know how everyone else's intuitions are. But when like when I think about that, just like philosophically, I'm just like, holy crap, that's an amazing story. I love that. It's just sounds so like it, there's so much redemption and so much beauty. And like, that's what we love in like the arts and cultures, like the story of like redemption. Like I'm watching Ted Lasso right now in the season <laughs> finale. And I'm like, I'm like, I didn't watch it yet, but I'm like, I'm hoping I'm like, are they going to redeem? Like they come from like getting relegated and all this stuff and like actually like winning the championship. Like that's a very small version of something beautiful. Like this redemption that we're talking about here. No. Yeah. How Randall Rouser puts it. He says, as he says, quote, the final view universalism insists that as bad as things are now, and however bad they may become, nonetheless, eschatologically, all things, including the lost, will finally be reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. Only at that time and under this very specific scenario will everything sad indeed come untrue. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Zach, is that I am presented with this possibility. I mean, let's just say that I've imagined universalism. Well, it seems far more beautiful than the world that you've told me that is real. And if beauty is an indication of truth, then that's probably an indication that your view isn't the true one, right? So, um, yeah, I was really glad I got to incorporate that in my book. And so when I saw that, I couldn't resist the other day when I saw that. You're <laughs> like, oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about this. So 
and I'm sure there's probably people like me in this case where for me, like I look at it and I think about it philosophically um, and I'm like, yeah, universalism, like that's a beautiful story. And, and like we're talking about the ver former universalism, not where like everyone just like dies and gets to, gets to heaven like automatically. But there is this process of like repentance and turning to God. And like there actually is like punishment and suffering for sin, like this very like sophisticated form that you and like Bentley Hart and people would advocate for. Um, but for people like me. What I get hung up on, and I'm probably a good part of this is like the evangelical background I come from. And like a lot of people may come from like a Catholic background um, or I don't know how Orthodox are about like universalism. But a lot of people come from a background where universalism is just like not even like considered. Like there's no option for universalism. It's just like that's not true. It's unbiblical. Um, we don't want to go into every passage. But for someone like me and for people listening that like come from this background of like where universalism like just doesn't make sense biblically. Um how do you advocate? Like, how do you open the door for people like us? Like, how do we, like, how can we think about this? Sure. Yeah. So, um, there was, I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to watch our rhetoric, right? Like I remember oftentimes I talk about this in the introduction. Oftentimes when I go on forums that are universalist forums, no matter what objection is raised to universalism, what passage, there's not usually a response. There's, well, you just don't understand so-and-so, right? Mm -hmm. It's gaslighting. You just don't understand them. And so what I advocate in my book is we'll help them to understand. Like, don't just say you yeah. understand, help them to understand. So I really think my book is clear. And uh, that's what one of the beauties of the book. And I really think that I toned down the rhetoric in some respects compared to other books, right, on this subject. So one thing is, watch the rhetoric. The reason why I love universalism is because I love persons. Like Zach knows, I'm, I'm a people's guy, right? I, I love being around people. I love talking to people. <laughs> if I didn't, I wouldn't love universalism. There's too many people in heaven, right? Um. Mm -hmm. What I get afraid of is that I don't think that all universalists love persons. I think that some of it just like to be right. Mm -hmm. Like, like we like this idea, like kind of like certain flat earthers who I've met that we like this idea or um, Jesus Smithers that few of us hold this belief, right? Few of us hold this belief. We're like a gated community and it's, it's better that way. If you hold us, like we're the cognoscenti, we're the really smart ones. Um, and so it's just going to see this, this feeling of self, right? I'm superior to these other people because of this belief that I hold that few people have. The truth is, I don't want few people to believe in universalism. I think that, um, just being frank, the other views have been a hindrance to the gospel. Okay, like in terms of evangelism, uh, if you, there are quotations that you can find online from individuals who left the faith because they couldn't believe, like the eternal doctrine of hell in particular. You have Charles Darwin, for example. He says he can't imagine anybody who wants the traditional view to be hell because if that is so, then that means some of his family members or friends are going to hell forever. Um, I have met family members, for example, who or turned off to the faith because of the doctrine of hell. And so I think that universalism has an opportunity in this case. It just makes sense, right? It makes sense rationally, I think biblically, and, and from our conscience within. And so I think that if we watch the, rec, uh, the rhetoric, that you can win more flies with honey than you do vinegar, right? So that's the first thing I'd say is that universalist is on us to watch the rhetoric. The second thing I think is that I think it's about time that non-universalists stopped arguing like atheists. So I got this idea from Trent Horn, where he wrote a book recently. It was um, something like uh, when Protestants argue like atheists, right? And, and he's not meaning to be derogatory. What he's saying is that these same apologists, when they debate atheists versus when they debate Catholics, they seem to have a double standard, right? And I think that the same applies when it comes to the topic of universalism. So, for example, you'll see this thing with online atheists in particular, where they say, where is the evidence for God? Show me the evidence for God. Then you'll have a brilliant theist like Zach here will give inductive, deductive, and abductive arguments for the existence of God. Like, they'll lay it all out there. And then what usually happens? Well, you'll have the online atheist reply back, 
that's no evidence for the existence of God, right? There is no evidence. Well, I've experienced the same thing with universalism, right? Well, I give passage after passage, interpretation of the counter passages. I give reasons from pure conscience and, and reasons just from rationality itself for why his other views are inferior and universal and superior. I lay this all at abductive, deductive, inductive. And what do I get? There is no evidence for universalism. <laughs> seems to be the same thing. Um, another thing is, I, I noticed this too, is where it seems like many, especially traditionalists, what they do is they, they keep on lobbing out uh, rebuttals to universal and saying, well, you haven't answered this. Well, you haven't answered this. Well, you haven't answered this. But here's the thing. They never stop to consider, well, I haven't answered this, that, and the other. See, what we need to do in respect to our positions is realize that it may be that while the other position has some flaws, we have infinitely more in our position, right? And so I think that's what happens with certain online atheists that you'll see. They keep on throwing out objections to theism in particular, but they never stop to consider, oh, man, I might have some problems in my own view, or I might have even many and greater problems with my own view. So I think that we need reflection and accountability on part of the non-universalists to examine their view and say, are there weightier and even more objections to my view than there are to the universalist view? So I think we need that as well. Um, I think, like you said, Zach, when it comes to evangelicals in particular, we need arguments from scripture, right? We, we need arguments from passages like Romans 5 and from passages like Colossians 1 and John 12, 32 and John 17 um, passages in Revelation. We need passages that point to universalism as well as we need a really good convincing exegesis of passages that are raised against universalism. But here's the problem, Zach, is I know certain universalists at Cambridge, at Duke, at high institutions, who they're universalists, but they're closet universalists because they fear that if they come out, if they wrote something on this topic, they'd be fired, right? They'd be removed uh, and they have family. They have children that they're trying to provide for. So it's a question that I get from a lot of people is, um, you know, how can I embrace something that's going to put my livelihood at stake? I have a family, right? And I think it's really, just being honest, it's gross that this is, this is what it has come to. I mean, these individuals are just saying that God, he's victorious in the end. He's convinced every last soul. They're not saying something like, I'm denying the Trinity. I'm denying the incarnation. I'm denying the inspiration of the Bible. I'm denying the resurrection. They haven't done any of that. And yet there's a fear looming overhead that if I come out and embrace this view and try to provide the extra Jesus that people are saying, provide us with, then that they'll use that as an opportunity to get me fired from my job. Right. So I think in order, Zach, to have a better conversation on this, we need to start removing some of those boundaries, right, to retribution in the sense that these people will lose their jobs. I lost. Um, well, I didn't lose mine. I walked away from a job. I, I had a job in apologetics. And it just got to the point where um, this was the main issue that I broke over. There were others, but this was it. It was, I could no longer in good faith tell parents, well, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Great Divorce that settles it, really. I mean, it makes total sense. It just wasn't convincing anymore. And I couldn't tell lies at night to mothers who put their children in bed and said, you know, I love you so much that I, my love would never stop for you. But there will come a time right, when God mm -hmm. may be different. So, yeah, those are the something that I said. I think we need to watch the rhetoric. I think that would be more helpful if we didn't immediately excommunicate somebody and fire them from their job. And if we be, can be more gracious and open to hearing out someone of an opposite view. Mm. Yeah. I think just acting out of love is just a very like important fundamental thing. And I think that's something cool about like this whole like YouTube podcast realm is that like, we can be part of the change. Like if we can have conversations, like if I can go out from this and if Andrew can go out from this, having those conversations with people that we disagree about in love, um, and still being intellectually rigorous, 
then like that's a win. And if people that are listening to this can do the same thing where we're going to act like whether how we comment, how we talk with other people, if we can do that out of love um, and charity and at the same time, like argue and be intellectually rigorous, like that's a win. And like we can be part of the change, like embrace it within yourself to be part of the change um, that we need to see. So we're getting closer to the end here, Andrew. Um, obviously, there's a bunch of things we didn't talk about. Uh, I would encourage people, like, if you want, like, that full comprehensive, like, case um, for universalism, you could check out one, um, our podcast, number 216. Uh, if you're listening on YouTube, it's number 216. The podcast, like, if you're listening on, like, Apple, Spotify, whatever, it's kind of different. Um, but YouTube episode 216, Andrew kind of lays out that whole case. And he also did stuff on, like, Capturing Christianity and others. Um, he has this whole case that you can listen to. Um, and that wasn't the goal today is to lay that all out. Andrew, anything like maybe like any like questions or last topics you want to cover on universalism that are you think would be relevant before we wrap up? Um, sure. So I think uh, one thing at the end is some people ask me, well, what are the benefits of holding this view? Right. Mm. Well, I think one of them is um, I struggled as a kid to want to have children when I got older. And the answer was simple. When people when people ask me, do you want kids? I say right away, no. And they say, why? You know, why is that? And I said, I can't imagine bringing someone to the world, you know, who has just even a slight chance of their life being worse for them on the whole, enduring something like eternal conscious torment, right? Mm, so some yeah. people might say, oh, well, it won't be eternal conscious torment. It'll be annihilationism. As if that's any better, you know, as a parent, bring someone to a world who's ultimately going to be annihilated by God, the God of love, right? Uh, if you take the retributive view of annihilationism. So I didn't want kids for a while. But now that convinced of universalism, I come from a family of seven, right? So I think, hey, the more the merrier, <laughs> right? Because everybody's <laughs> getting in. So it's going to be good for them on the whole, right? So that, that fear that this one mother had when she heard the eternal view, and she went out and she drowned all six of her children because she was told if they get past the age of accountability, there's a good chance they could be lost, right? That fear no longer has to be in the heart of a parent. So when a parent sees their child, for example, go wayward, right, they can know, they can have this hope that in the end it will work out, right? It's tough now, but in the end, God will see them through. I mean, I've ministered to people where I've known several people, I'm sad to say, who the past few years have committed suicide. I've had family members, right, who have been suicidal. And what gives me hope is that in the end, their life will be a great good to them on the whole. In the end, they will come to know God, right? So this helps at the personal level with, with dealing with family, with friends. It also helps as a minister. When you're a minister and you're called on to, you know, give last rice to somebody, would they have like, you have 15 minutes with this individual. You got to get them from milk to Ferrari, right? That's a lot of pressure to put on any one individual. There are many pastors who, for these reasons, they're depressed. I remember one pastor who hung himself the stress of something like this whereas if you adopt the universalist view you know right that you're preparing this person you're doing all that you can but you know that in the end it's not just up to you that that it's going to work out in the end that god's not going to stop loving this person when this person dies the same is what i say to people who commit suicide is that i told their parents i said god has not stopped loving your daughter he hasn't stopped loving your daughter. He still loves her, and he's going to pursue her to the end, and you will see your daughter again. That is hope that I can give as a universalist someone that the non-universalist simply cannot, right? So I'd say that there are many benefits that universalism offers. For me, it changed my life in no small degree. I mean, now I see persons as persons, right? I don't see them as projects. I got to get them to the Romans Road in five minutes. Seen as persons where they have stories, they have complex stories, right? They have histories, they have destinies, and the God of this universe deeply loves them and is pursuing them. And like the grand chess master, he will checkmate them in the end, right? Mm -hmm. So those are some final words of hope, Zach. I'd say is um, that I think that Universal presents the most beautiful picture of God 
right? That being that which non-creator can be conceived. And yeah. I hope that others will come to embrace that vision too. And I'd say that start by buying my book. Um, you can buy it. I think the, the Kindle, funny thing is the Kindle is now number one in Calvinist Christianity. Go figure. Um, but you can buy it in uh, paperback. You can buy it in a hard copy and hardcover. Um, I would suggest that if you want to buy a physical copy, you go to Wiffenstock, my publishers, where you can subscribe to their newsletter and get 40% off for your first purchase, like I said at the beginning. So go and do that if you want to save some cheddar. But if you really want to help you know, a very hungry and in-debt seminarian out, feel free to spend all the money you can. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, Andrew, this has been super fun, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it's cool to see how you've just grown. Like, I'm thinking about the guy I met, like, in 2019, and I'm just like, geez, like, you've come a long ways. Um, praise the Lord for that. Um, as we wrap up, Andrew, maybe, like, Tell us, like, what's next for you? Like, you're at Princeton. Um, you just published this book of Universalism. Uh, what projects are you, like, headed towards next? What's next for you? Sure, yeah. So I have I have several projects um, that come to mind. Some are actually – I've been a fantasy writer for years. So some people may be surprised when they read this book. But I remember talking to Greg Boyd and saying, yeah, my I would take it a better compliment if someone complimented my fictional fantasy work than they complimented my book for Universalism. So I hope to get some of that out in the near future. As far as theology, I'm hoping to get a book out on infant salvation uh, where I take the view of limbo, uh, which is rather unpopular these days. Right? You never hear of a Protestant taking that, but I do take the view of limbo. So I hope to get that project underway sometime here in the summer. Uh, as far as education, I'm very excited. I'm halfway through my master's at Princeton. Unbelievable that God has given me this opportunity to study at Princeton. Um, I'm absolutely confident that I can make it in the big leagues elsewhere. The problem, of course, is finances right? Where um, I got to pay for all these things. I have to pay off my college debts. Hopefully Joe Biden will come in. He'll come in strong, take away 10,000 that, right? So um, I just really need people to buy this book and uh, find other ways that I can make money so I can pay for my education. So that eventually I hope to be a professor, maybe even a pastor at the same time. Just continue to share the love of Jesus Christ with as many people as I possibly can. Well, Andrew, this has been such a fun conversation, and I'm very certain that this will not be the last time that you're on the podcast, um, and who knows what we'll be talking about next time. Um, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. I encourage people to check out Andrew's book. It's going to be linked down in the description for you. Also, it's going to be linked is our last podcast episode where we talked about a comprehensive case for Christian universalism, where we talked about like philosophical and like theological arguments for universalism. And yeah, that's that. I encourage you guys to check that stuff out. Um, be sure to keep following Andrew and his work. Um, and if you like it here in Apologetics, be sure to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. Um, and before you leave, like, really please consider becoming a patron. You can do it for literally a, just a dollar a month. Um, and that'd be huge and helpful. So thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. Um, thank you, Andrew. One last time. Appreciate you so, so much. Um, yeah, it's been great. Thank you for having me, Zach. All right. Have a good one, everyone. And God bless. We'll catch you next time.